for a few moments as we come to the conclusion of about six or seven months looking at the steps that led to Jesus' crucifixion. This evening we want to work on the death that Jesus died. Luke 23, beginning with verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this man was a righteous person, and all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. You'll notice again the last line of verse 46. Having said thus, he gave up the ghost. The death that Jesus died. Let's pray. Father, again, it is our great honor to be able to fellowship for a few moments around the word of the Lord. We do want to remember at this time, Lord, Mr. Billy Graham's family midst of the loss of that gentleman. Father, tonight as we declare your word, we pray that you give us all ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly and let every word pierce our heart. Father, may we not leave here like we came. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'll remember, we started in Luke 22, verse 31, looking at statement where Jesus said to Peter, the devil wants to sift you. He's doing everything he can to shake you in your faith. Jesus said, I prayed for you. We then walked through that garden in which he was apprehended. Mark tells us quite clearly that all the disciples fled. Very lonely time for Christ. Left by himself, his closest friends turned away from him. You can only imagine what that must be like if you've ever come through a difficult time yourself and had some of your closest relations abandon you during the period when you needed them most. Apprehended, Jesus went from one trial to another until Pilate sentenced him to be condemned by crucifixion. But he bore that cross honorably, marching to Golgotha, with women weeping behind him. And he even stopped and told the ladies, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. I see trouble down the road for all of you. Once he got to Calvary, nobody had to chase him around the top of that hill. He willingly laid himself on that cross. Allowed himself to be crucified. Sharp nails piercing his hands, piercing his feet. Hanging up there between earth and heaven, he had a conversation with a man that said to him, Lord, please remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Even as he's dying, he's leading people to heaven. 
He said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Amazingly, though, when we consider all of the events that have transpired, we have to ask this one question. Why was it necessary for him to come and die? For whom did he die? The answer, quite simply, is sin. God took one man that he had made in the garden, gave him authority. From that one man's rib created a wife by the name of Eve. Gave that couple dominion in the garden of Eden and told them not to eat of a particular tree, but because of one transgression, one misstep. Romans tells us that everyone that's born into this world comes into this world with native sin, inbred, original sin. That as beautiful as a baby is when he or she is born, as innocent as can possibly be, yet stained. By sin. Not guilty of actual sin. Unable to discern what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. But yet, with the law of sin yet inside of them. That's why when every child comes of age, it's very important for them to come to know who Christ is personally. For whom did Christ die? For people born in sin. Why was it necessary for Jesus to come into this world and die. It was necessary because he knew that you would be born and I would be born. A bridge would be needed to be reconciled to God. We'd need a way to be able to reestablish a relationship with God that had been cut off by sin. And this is why Jesus is here hanging on the cross right now, not guilty because he had sinned, but bearing the sins of man. You can see from this verse here now, that it's the sixth hour, that's noontime, and it lasted till the ninth hour. According to the Jewish reckoning of time, that would be about 3 p.m. What must that have been like when the darkness swept over the earth? The scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 10 that when Moses was leading the children of Israel, that he stuck his hand out and he brought darkness over all of Egypt, the scripture says. Exodus 10. But it says, even though the darkness was so thick, almost like you could touch it, you know, can't see anything. Put your hand up in front of your face and it's so dark you can't even see an outline of your fingertips. It was that dark. The Bible says in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel dwelt, they had light in their dwelling places. That's the image. That's the picture that God wants you to have as we look at this. People who have no relationship with God, who have no covenant with God, they abide in darkness. People that know God, are born of God, with a relationship with God. They have light in their dwellings. They're children of light, as the scripture says. And so imagine Jesus, the light of the world, according to the gospel of John, hanging on the cross. Everybody else abiding in darkness except those that believe in him. That's the image and that's the picture. They're crucifying the light of the world. And the Bible makes it very plain that it has grown dark in that area. Well, that's what happens if you turn the light out. If you turn the light out, the bugs come out. If you turn the light on, the bugs scatter to the corners. Christ has offered himself as a sin offering for this world and for you and for me. And these people standing around have been mocking him. Darkness has come. 
Now, this isn't the only time in connection with Christ that there will be darkness. The Bible does tell us in the book of Joel that one day, after the church is called away, there will be seven years of tribulation in this world, seven years of dire consequences for men and women that have not served God and have not walked with God with an upright spirit. But the scripture says on that final day, when that sixth seal in Revelation is open, says the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn to blood. Revelation 19 says Jesus will return on a white horse, multitudes of people with him, and he will tie a knot in the devil and put the devil in a bottomless pit for 1,000 years on the final day. Darkness is emerging here as the light of the world dies, but symbolically it's going to happen again at the end of the age when the king returns. Now here's something Think about, the scripture says in verse 45, when the sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in the midst. The temple was situated on a hill in Jerusalem. There was no place you could go in that city where you could not get a glimpse of that beautiful temple made out of white stone. When the sun shined upon it at midday, I mean, it just radiated with a brilliant light. Beautiful. But that temple had many different outer courts and precincts to which different kinds of people could walk. The ladies could go so far. Non-Jewish people could go so far. Jewish men could go a little further. The priests could move a little further into it, but only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. But that most holy place had a big large curtain that was there preventing people from peeping into that holy place. And when Jesus was hanging there on the cross right about midday between 3 p.m., it says that thing was torn. God reached down from heaven and just tore it asunder. To demonstrate to us that when, it, when we think of the Old Testament law and its statutes and its liturgy, that all of that has been nailed to the cross, we are no longer bound by those Old Testament precepts. The moral law. Still binds us. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't commit adultery. That's true for every community in this earth, but it's no longer necessary for the man as the head of his house to go to Jerusalem and take a sheep for his family and have that sheep sacrificed for the sins of his family three times a year. It's no longer necessary for, for shepherds to breed cattle that are going to be used for butchering every single day. No longer necessary for that. The veil was torn. The Old Testament tabernacle became antiquated. The temple now has become obsolete because God lives in us now. The temple of God. He's made his residence in you. He no longer lives in a building. I know when we say we're going to church, we're telling people we're going to a building. But in reality, we are the church. Whether under a tree, meeting in the rice fields like Vietnamese Christians. In a home, in a living room like the underground Christians in Saudi Arabia. If we were out in a field somewhere like the, the Chinese believers trying to hide from the communist government that wants to attack them. Wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. It doesn't take a large group. It simply takes two people that believe. That's scripture. 
This man, Jesus, died on the cross to make it possible for you to enjoy a brand new life. And the scripture says that life is yours for the taking. So now, the Bible tells us that we become born again. We put off the old man, put on the new. Every day in your Christian life, it consists of you getting rid of certain things, gathering certain things. Take up the cross and follow me. It has to do with you getting rid of certain ways of thinking in order for God to renew your mind into new ways of thinking. That is what Christianity is all about. And if you consider what it means to serve God, it means to please God. Does your life please God? Does your thinking please God? Does your speech please God? Do your activities every day bring a smile to God? Or do you grieve the Spirit as I have grieved the Holy Spirit before? Do you allow your life to, to please God in such a way that if the Lord needed to, he could brag on you as he did about Job and say, this person here turns from evil and loves me? That's what God is after. God wants you to live your life for him. An audience of one. I was reading here recently about a Vietnamese gathering where a musician in front of all these Christians, he was a violinist. He got up and he, he played beautifully. In fact, he played so well that near the end of the song, the people stood up and they just started clapping because it just he played so well. Once he was done with the song and, and he he had all those people clapping. He waited till they were just about done. Then he took that, uh, that violin and put it right in front of them. And then he just started jumping up and down on it and just absolutely destroyed it. He said to the people, it's not the violin that makes the beautiful music. It's the musician. Well, the next night, he had to play again. He's up there in front of that that Christian gathering, and sure enough, I mean, he got to he got to playing that thing one more time, and again, them people stood up, and with rapturous, thunderous applause, they were just telling, letting him know how much they loved the music and how they enjoyed it. And then after he was done, he, he then he, he played another song, and and he noticed as he was playing that other song, nobody else was clapping, nobody else seemed to enjoy it, but the one person who who did enjoy it was just kind of going. Just back and forth and had a nice smile on their face. He could really tell the person was enjoying it. And then when he finished the song, he said to the people, he said, I played that song for you the first time and you, you were all excited about that. But he said, tonight in the audience, I have the man that taught me how to play the violin. I knew he didn't like that kind of music. That's not how he instructed. He said, but that second song, I played it exactly as my master violinist teacher instructed me how to play it. None of you liked it, but he enjoyed it. Then he goes on to say, the one thing we need to consider with our life as we live our life, that every life is playing a song. And when you think about the song your life is playing, is it playing a song that pleases the crowds? Or is it playing a song that pleases God? Does your life please God in such a way that he is happy with you and he adores you and he's excited about what you're doing? Or does your life simply lead you into areas where you please the multitude so that they'll be happy with you? Something to think about. 
coming back to Luke. Scripture here says that Jesus opened up his mouth in verse 46 and he cried with a loud voice. He exerted himself. He's in pain. He's hanging there trying to gasp for breath, but yet he composes himself and has enough strength to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Man that's dying that still exhibits utter reliance on God. Always remember this. There's a right way and a wrong way to leave this world. A right way and a wrong way. The right way to leave this world It's through an utter dependence on God where you trust him even in your darkest moments, even when you're in pain. The wrong way to leave this world is angry, bitter at God. How many times have you met people when they're passing through a difficult time, they get so angry and upset and they say, well, I I can't understand why God is permitting me to go through this. Well, I don't have an answer. I don't understand why God has allowed my life to be distressed like this. And this 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 degree of discomfort has come to me and I'm angry at God. You don't need to be angry with God. His own son was crucified for you so that you wouldn't be angry with his father. Think about it. Sometimes God allows distress to come to you that it might be a greater blessing to somebody else. Had not Jesus come and died, we would have never experience the benefits of the accomplishment of his redemption. Think about that. He died for you. He died for me. Many years ago when Tiffany and I used to preach in Beatrice, one day I had to drive over there. I can't remember what I was doing, but I got maybe about a mile or two west of Fairbury. Got a flat tire. And it was one of those good old Nebraskan days when it was hot, you know, just 105, 106 degrees. And, of course, as soon as you step out of the car, then old man's son just leans on your shoulder and wouldn't, wouldn't go anywhere. And I was frustrated now because the tire is flat and pop open the trunk and the spare was bad. So I've got to get <clears throat> to where I can get this tire taken care of. So I already knew. Well, I'm not going to push this car down there with nobody behind the wheel for sure, so I might as well just drive on the bad tire all the way there. It's going to be tore up by the time I get there. Nevertheless, if I can get there before that that, uh, that wheel is messed up, then we can get it replaced. So sure enough, I got there, and there was a, I think there used to be just on that northwest side of Fairbury, There was like a church of God up on a hill, and just across the street there was a a tire place, a mechanic place. And so I I pulled in there, told them my problem. They said, oh, we can take care of you, no no problem at all. Just just go wait in the waiting room. Now, you you know as well as I do in these little small towns, these mechanic places, they'll have a waiting room, but ain't nobody waited in there in 30 years. (laughs) Nobody does that. They'll come pick your car up for you and take it take you home or whatever. So I'm sitting there in a waiting room. And then pretty soon after I've been there five or ten minutes, here comes a lady. She's having a problem and she's from Jansen. So she sits down. So we get to talking a little bit. She tells me a little bit about her life. I ask her if she cared anything about God. I was a pastor. She had bad experiences growing up and kind of church she told me she grew up in so she just hadn't really seen any good Christian. Well within 30 minutes led that woman to Christ. 
sitting in that waiting room. Came to know God. Well, of course, when I got in that car and I drove home, I was thinking to myself, that, that little disruption in my day brought a woman to the kingdom of God. Think about that. You, you'll never understand why God permits certain things to happen to your life, but it, it very well may be that you're passing through difficulties on the job because there may be somebody God needs you to talk to on that job. When I was in the hospital and had a blood clot, I didn't get angry that I had blood clot. I just thought this is an opportunity to witness to a nurse, somebody, about God. You can allow your circumstances to make you bitter or you can become better. It all determines. It's all determined by you. Scripture says Jesus cried out to his heavenly father. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Give it all to God when you're in the midst of pain. Don't just hold it and just get angry and upset. Give it to God. Don't allow that stuff to churn inside of you and cause you to be separated from God because of your anguish and because of your pain. Many people leave this world angry at God. Never want to talk to God again. He's not the problem. Never going to speak to God again because someone that was so important to me and so close to me, that person has now been taken away from me. I don't want to talk to God again. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. Now this is interesting because verse 47 then, the soldier that crucified him. When he saw what was done, he glorified God. Verse 44 tell us that, it tells us that darkness came over the earth. Verse 45 said the sun was darkened. Verse 47 said when the centurion saw, so that, that shows you that even in the darkness, God can open up your eyes and help you to see the truth who Christ is. Don't ever tell me that somebody's too deep in their sins for God to reach them. God reached me, God reached you, he'll reach others. Don't ever think that somebody is so blinded by the God of this world that they'll never be able to perceive truth. In one moment, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can do more than we could ever do in 15 conversations with somebody. Because the weight and the power of the Holy Spirit is so great. It says when he saw what was done, suddenly this man glorified God. What a transformation so quickly, so quickly. One moment he's swinging a hammer, driving the nails in his hands and in his feet. A few moments later, he's praising God. Tell me God can't change a man or a woman. He can do it quickly. He can do it quickly. So this man gave a witness and he said, an innocent man has died. That is the testimony that people had been looking for for a very long time. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. The Jewish leaders knew that Jesus was innocent, but they got people that they compelled to lie and brought false witnesses to blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus. And here he is being crucified. And finally, somebody says, this man is innocent. He's a righteous man. But notice when it's happening as he's hanging on the cross. Die. Difficult. Difficult. 
But this one man who was a centurion who changed his life so quickly and uttered a beautiful and a marvelous testimony. When this man said this 2,000 years ago, his statement was as important and as powerful as the thief who hung on the cross and said that Jesus has done nothing amiss. Could it be possible that a thief and a centurion 2,000 years ago in a few moments with one sentence have done more witnessing for God than you have in most of your life? Have you ever opened up your mouth and witnessed and testified for the Lord to let people know how good God is, how wonderful he's been to you, how gracious God has been to you? How many times have you seen people in a restaurant sit down at their food there and, I mean, just like swine, just dive in? They don't even bother to say grace. Ashamed. Don't want to anger anybody. Don't want to offend anybody. But we don't think about offending him that provided the bounty in front of us in a restaurant. Sometimes even in our home with, with our own family. Or some people when they pray, they, they won't let their witness be too public. They'll kind of do that prayer, you know, where you're checking your glasses in your pocket. Real quick, and then, you know, then they're up inside of a second and a half. Father, bless this food in Jesus' name. That kind of a thing. No! If you're going to stand with Christ and be near Christ, don't be ashamed of him. He's not ashamed of you. He died for you. That's how much he loved you. He loved you so much he did this. Would you have done that? He did it. The impact was so great, or the effect was so, was so important that in verse 48 it said, In all the people that were there, they came together to that site, and beholding the things that were done, they smote their breasts. Even they began to experience conviction. They, they said, this isn't right what we've done here. Darkness has come. This innocent man has cried out to God, and they're hitting their breasts. Oh, my God, how could we do this? Paul said that to the Corinthians, he said, had the princes of this world known what they were doing, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory in the first place. Had they known? Have you ever done anything you wish you could do over? Has there ever been a period of your life that if you could go back for a one-year period or three-year period, a five-year period, and just get those years or days back, what would you do over again? Maybe your actions would have been different. Maybe you would have held on to something that you lost. Jesus is on the cross in verse number 49 says all of his acquaintances and the women that followed stood afar off. The women who followed him in life. Now they're at the cross following him in death. Because they're not going to let anything separate them from the love of God in Christ. They're at Calvary. Those ladies. I don't know. I, I just. That verse 49 is a heartbreaking thing when I think about a, a mom that's standing there at the cross by the name of Mary. She's looking at that boy who, who's hanging on that cross that even though he's a 
He's an adult male hanging there with blood flowing down his brow and with blood going down his hands and dripping from his feet. Inside that adult male body, she still sees that boy whose diapers she used to change. She still sees that little lad who took his first steps with mom standing right there guiding. Still sees that. What must that be like for a mother to watch her child being crucified in front of a mass of people that are uh, laughing and mocking. And there's not a thing in the world she can do about it. She can't take on the centurions. She's not going to go up to the cross and begin to try to remove him from the wood and try to pl pull the, the nails out of his flesh. She's not going to do that. She stands there. She weeps and she cries. She's looking at him. He's looking at her. She's embarrassed about what is taking place. And here a centurion finally has acknowledged this man is righteous and innocent. But too late to make the statement now. Had to be a heartbreaking thing for this to be what you believe is going to be the last image you have of your son. There are a lot of people that have been on death row for a long time. And 20, 25 years ago... Capital punishment was applied a lot more rigorously and uh, a lot more often than it is today. But if somebody was going to be sentenced to death by rifle or injection or the electric chair, in particular for the latter two, they had a room set up where once the person went and laid down on the table, sat there in the chair, then you had all the family members, sometimes friends and reporters, sitting right there looking through a glass as it all happened. An individual comes walking in. Now this person who's about to die could have committed some of the most heinous crimes on this earth. Serial killer. Could have raped someone. Killed a few store clerks or something like that. Terrible, terrible deeds that, that, that had been done. However, when, when you think about it, though, in, in that booth over there, even though this person has been sentenced and, and found guilty, he or she is still somebody's child and grandchild. And you're never going to be able to stop a mama or a grandpa from weeping and crying when they see death coming to that blood. That blood king. Now you know as well as I do that you know these, these people that end up passing away, they got the evidence, all of that. You do the crime, you do the time and so forth, they're guilty. In this instance, there's a woman looking at her boy up there on that cross and he's done nothing wrong. A thief testified to it. He's done nothing amiss. Now the Roman centurion that crucified him is even saying it. This is a righteous man. But the centurion never tried to take him down from the cross. Even after acknowledging that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. So my point in all of this is to say Jesus willingly laid down his life and in our place he hung there condemned the Bible says, greater love has no man than this that would lay down his life for his friend. I'm not going to ask you to look to your left or to your right or look behind you, but I, I would ask you this. Would you be willing to die 
for somebody in here that you do know or somebody in here you do not know? Jesus did. Would you be willing to separate yourself from the, the possibility of seeing your children or your grandchildren? Would you walk away from all of that to allow yourself to be hung on the cross so that other people could become beneficiaries of the righteousness of God? Or would you be, as I probably would be, selfish enough to not want to leave my wife? Selfish enough to not want to leave this world. That's why God had to come into this world and die on the cross. Because he never would have got one of us to do it. Never would have got one of us to do it. Not for somebody else to see. Paul said, for a good man, people be willing to die. For an unrighteous man, scarcely would a man die. That is to say that there are people that, yes, they lay their life. Oh, pastor, I'd lay my life down for you in a heartbeat so that you can continue to preach the gospel and do what you're doing. And I'd say the same thing for you. But would you be willing to die for a thief? Would you be willing to die for a man that never has been worth anything as a citizen in this country. That every day of his life has been bad since he's been an adult. Answer probably would be no. But Jesus died for them too. So tonight as we approach the table. We think about the body of the Lord. And the blood that was shed. Remember that the only reason we have the opportunity to approach the communion table is because we recognize, number one, we weren't worthy in and of ourselves. But his blood has made us worthy. And if there's anything between us and God, tonight as we begin to, to move into this aspect of communion, then it's always good to just simply say to God, Oh, Heavenly Father, cleanse me now. Because the Bible says that we should judge ourselves, lest we be judged of God. We don't ever want to partake of communion unworthily. He said, well, pastor, what, what qualifies me to share in communion? Number one, faith in God, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, a repentant life, those things make it possible. Number two, we don't practice, never have practiced any kind of closed communion. We've never, ever said. Communion is only for people that worship with us. If you're in the body of Christ, and you're in the kingdom of God, and you're a Christian, you have the opportunity to approach the table because all of us eventually are going to end up in heaven together. And folks, if we can't share in communion together here on planet Earth, why in the world do we need to spend all of eternity together? The blood makes it possible for the tall and the short big and the small, the black and the white, the few and the many, to gather at the foot of the cross and say the ground here is level. There are no big eyes and big U's. There's no rich and poor. There's only Christ. So we're going to ask John to pray. As John prays, I want you to prepare your heart. Just ask God. Make you ready for this moment.